This is a podcast from Rover. Rex Technology and Innovation with NetSpeed, leaders in rural broadband. Now I'm a farmer and I'm digging, 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 digging. G'day there, everybody. How are we getting on? Welcome into the Rex Daily Podcast for Wednesday, September the 13th. I'm Dom George, and this is brought to you thanks to the good folk at NetSpeed. Now, coming up for you on the program today, Jahan Cassinator. He was mentioned in an interview with Jules Benton from Dairy Women's Network a couple of days ago on the show, we decided to get him on for a bit of a yarn. He is hosting a webinar on behalf of DWN next Tuesday, the 19th of September at 12pm. The important thing is uh, this webinar is not being recorded, so you can't miss it. It's called Tell Me the Good News. It's part of Mental Health Awareness Week. And uh, this is all about how being bombarded with negative, anxiety-inducing content all day And that's what uh, happens, isn't it? Let's be honest. It affects our mental health. So how do we find hope amidst the doom and gloom? We'll get a bit of a preview with Jahan in just a moment. Then it's a Wednesday, so we are going to do the soapbox. We ask a question, you provide your answers, and then we're going to go through them. Ben Dooley, my guest, on the soapbox today. As we heard the other day on the programme, Dairy Women's Network, they've got a couple of events coming up. One of them is Tell Me the Good News, which is next Tuesday, the 19th of September from midday. It is a webinar, and uh, the person that they have got for this particular webinar to... Uh, reel off some pearls of wisdom is award-winning journalist and speaker Jahan Cassinader, who joins us now on the line because Jules Benton from DWN was uh, very enthusiastic about this. And uh, I've got to say, I'm uh, looking forward to having a chat with Jahan as well. Jahan, nice to have you on the show. How are you doing? Hey, Dom. I'm very good, thanks. Pearls of wisdom. I hope I'll be able to uh, dredge up a few of those next week. But uh, it's an awesome opportunity to talk about mental health, so looking forward to it. Uh, Have you ever, I don't know, had much experience or done anything around, let's say, the agriculture sector? Yeah, well, as a journalist, I've had the privilege of travelling around the country for the last 15 years and interviewing people from very different walks of life. I've spent a lot of time on farms. I did some of the early reporting here in New Zealand back in the, you know, early 2010s around depression um, on farm, around mental health challenges. And back then, of course, we just weren't talking about this stuff. So um, I've spent a lot of time with people in rural communities who've been affected by mental health challenges. And then over the last few years, I found myself in a position where I was struggling with my own mental health. So I've kind of got two hats to wear. One is as a journalist who's very aware of um, the mental health challenges that people struggle with and how much of this is still stigmatised in our communities. And the other hat is as someone who's experienced depression, who's been suicidal, who's had to ask for help and find a way through that. So it's great to be able to um, to wear both of those hats at the same time and hopefully convince people that it is okay to talk about this stuff. So the stigma that you've uh, just alluded to, so talk to me about that because, yeah, I I think most people would agree that there's, or there was a stigma. I think people are now of the opinion by and large that a lot of those barriers are being broken down. Do you still see a way to go? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I didn't grow up in the take a concrete pill and harden up generation. <laughs> I did, I, I did, Jahan. You, did, so you <laughs> remember exactly what that's like. And look, Dom, that attitude, of course, that still exists in some families and communities. But you're right, we've come such a long way over the last 15 years or so. And I remember being at high school when Sir John Kerwin wrote the word hope 
in the sand in that famous ad campaign that really opened up this whole conversation. Yeah. It's interesting that next week's Mental Health Awareness Week, you know, Mental Health Awareness Week was created back in 1993 by the Mental Health Foundation precisely because no one was talking about this stuff. No one was aware. Few people were aware um, of how big a, big a problem this was. I think where we've got to now is that, yes, we're all aware, but actually what we need is action. What we need is to give people new tools, new strategies to think about the triggers in their life, the challenges that they are facing in their businesses and how those affect their well-being. So the webinar we're doing next week is called Tell Me the Good News, and it focuses very specifically on negative news. And this is a topic, as I travel around the country, that people are chewing my ear off about because I think we've all recognised that given how much stuff we've had to deal with over the last three years, with the pandemic, inflation, supply chain issues, everything else, there's so much doom and gloom out there. And the moment you jump into the newspaper, you go on a news website, you go on social media, you have a yarn with people at the pub about what's going on in the country, there is so much negativity, there's so much information that can get you down. And I think, as a journalist, we have a real responsibility to think about how that information is affecting people's mental health. And as news consumers, as people who read the stuff, we actually need to take a little bit more responsibility for what we're clicking on, what we're reading, and what we're listening to each day. So that's what I want to unpack. So that's an important distinction you make because back in the day before, uh, you know, social media, the internet, etc., you didn't really have that much choice because you would have yep. your daily newspaper, and I mean, by and large, you know, you would have a selection and a variety of stories that you could either choose to read or not to read. You had your six yep. o'clock news bulletin. But now it becomes something of a self-fulfilling prophecy via the algorithmic, I guess, landscape that we're in now. So you're right. And because, look, people have done this where they've gone, well, I'll only click on, say, puppies, for example, right? (laughs) And then that becomes self-fulfilling. And they just get basically their feed on whatever platform they might be on just comes back as uh, just wall-to-wall puppies. So we do have a lot more control now over over what we can actually consume. And also the content that we're being fed influences our emotional state and our mental health. There was a really interesting study done where Facebook fiddled with the algorithm, fiddled with the type of content that was ending up in people's Facebook timelines, and they adjusted that to make it more negative for a certain group of people. And what they noticed is that those people, their language started to change. Mm. In their own posts, they started using more negative terms. So, you know, there's a whole lot of research that shows that how we feel, how we make sense of the world, how we, whether we're optimistic or pessimistic, those things are significantly influenced by the content that we're being exposed to. And it's pretty frustrating for me when I talk to people who complain about this stuff, but they feel helpless. They feel that they don't have any choice. They think that they need to wake up each day and have all this stuff um, shoved down their throats. And that's not the case. You know, each of us can make different choices about the, the news and the information that we consume. And we need to take back some of that control. And that's what I want to help people to understand. How do they? How can they actually do that? Yeah, which is a very worthy endeavour. And it's good because sometimes it can just be a bit of, I mean, it seems so patently obvious, but yet it's not in the practical reality of yeah. your day-to-day and, existence, and right? And the reason for that is because we have a negativity bias as humans. Right? Yeah, and this totally. Is, this is something that underpins the way that the news works. 
and I'm very familiar with it having been a journalist, is that we're drawn to the bad stuff. We're drawn to stories that are concerning or threatening, stories about death and devastation and destruction. That's partly because of the way that our brains have evolved to protect us. You know, back in the day, the things that would trigger us would be, you know, a predator in the jungle or something that was coming to steal our food or eat our young. Yeah. And one of the points I'll be making next week in the webinar is that these days, what are we triggered by? What triggers that part of our brain on a daily basis? It could be a breaking news alert. You know, it could be a piece of information, something that pops up, makes us anxious, distracts us, makes us concerned. And as you talked about earlier, Dom, we're being fed that stuff all day, every day. Whereas mm. when I was growing up, you know, you, you had paper land on your doorstep first thing in the morning, and then in the evening, Richard and Judy would tell you <laughs> what had happened in the country. And what, what happened in that intervening 12 hours? You went out, you lived your life, you went to work, you went to school, you went to university, you had no idea what was happening in the world. Yeah. So I think most people don't understand how dramatically the news and information landscape has changed. And it feels like you're drinking from a fire hose all day, every day, because there's so much coming at you. But does that need to be the case? I think we can change our habits. I think you're exactly right. It's a really good message. Uh, the thing is, I've been in rural media now for, oh, I can't even count the years. It's been like a long time, 10 years plus, right? And um, I always find in relation to uh, the way that rural media is presented, there's no difference. In fact, I sometimes find it almost more negative than your general news, which is saying is something. That? Yeah, good question. Well, I think a lot of it is to do with the fact that so much of it is outside the control of the individual farmer. Sure, there's a lot that the farmer can control on their particular property, but when you look at things like exchange rates, uh, banking policy, weather, all the things that, I mean, weather's huge and you can do nothing about it, right? And yep. that can make or break somebody within a you know, a drought or a flood, as we've seen recently, yep. can put you back two, three years, sometimes more, as in the case might be in Hawke's Bay at the moment with with orchards as one example. So, um, and then I think it's just on top of that, so so you pile that on top of what what you've just been speaking about, which is how we're sort of hardwired for that sort of stuff, and I think you almost get the perfect storm at times. And it's not to say that that's 100% across the board all the time, but I have found that that seems to be the the go-to, if you like, the M.O., yeah, and I think, look, what we're suggesting here is not that people put their heads in the sand or that they need to be Pollyanna and just only look for positive information. Mm. I mean, you're, you're right, you can't control the milk price, can you? You can't control inflation, you can't control some of these challenges. And anyone who's running a farm or a business of any kind knows that in order to be effective, you need to be informed, you need to be informed about what's happening in politics, you need to have a handle on what your sector or what your industry is doing. But my challenge is, are you exposed to stories that give you hope and are you sharing stories with your employees and the people that you come into contact with in your business that gives them a sense that there is a way through these challenges and the problem with a lot of what we see on social media and to some extent what we receive from the news is it can feel very hopeless so I think there's a real opportunity there for people to think about how do I look for hopeful stories stories that are grounded in fact stories that give me a sense of what's possible. How can I learn from what other people are doing in the farming sector that actually helps me to build my business and and be well as a leader and a person? And if you don't look for that stuff, if you just fixate on the negative and the predictions and analyses and all of the projections about the doom and gloom that's coming down the pipeline, 
that is going to have a detrimental impact on, on your ability to function. And I think many of us have experienced that, especially during COVID. Can I suggest something to you that I find quite interesting and some, somewhat paradoxical? So in the mental health space, and let's just say, let's talk about rural mental health here. Mm-hmm. In that particular space, there is something, again, of being fed that information rather constantly, I would have to say, and... It's a double-edged sword because you need, as you've alluded to, the awareness. Absolutely, you need the awareness how to deal with these things. Farming can be very isolating, very lonely. The obstacles can seem at times totally insurmountable and out of your control. Uh, And I do wonder sometimes whether or not you keep getting these messages of, all these farmers are mentally, um, you know, hampered at the moment. There's a lot of depression, suicide. Let's not beat around the bush. That yep. is something that is a is, is a major factor as well. Is it becoming a message that's feeding on itself? Definitely, definitely. And I think one of the interests I've just written a piece for um, the paper this weekend on the issue of suicide because one of the things I hear a lot as I travel around the country, is, oh, we're not allowed to talk about this. Why are we shoving this under the rug? We need to be, we need to be talking about it. And yes, in the past, suicide was highly stigmatised. It was taboo. We, we used coded language. We didn't, you know, there was a lot, there were many, many reasons why we didn't have that conversation. But as you alluded to right at the start of this conversation, a lot has changed, right? We've been having these conversations now for many years. And my question at the moment is, are those conversations actually helping? So if you take an issue like suicide, um, even being exposed to stories about people who've ended their lives has been proven to have a detrimental impact on other people's well-being. So if we're going to be talking about this stuff, we've got to be aware that in talking about it, we may actually be causing harm to someone. The, the, the challenge and the opportunity is how do we talk about it in a hopeful way? If we're going to talk about mental health, we're going to talk about depression or suicidality, those stories need to be infused with hope. What we need to be focusing on is actually how do you get through? And we need to be highlighting stories about people who have actually overcome mental health challenges. And I think we've seen a lot of that in the rural sector in the last few years. It's been really useful. But I agree that focusing on on how everybody's struggling and how badly everybody's doing can also have a, a, a negative effect because it creates a sense of inevitability and can contribute to the exact problem that we're trying to combat here. So it is a bit of a paradox. And then you've got this issue as well, um, and I don't want to be uh, too cynical, although, you know, one cannot uh, escape the cut of their jib, so to speak, Jahan. But uh, there is part of me that looks at the people that are stepping in to the breach here in terms of mental health and wellness coaching, if you like. And a lot of it is, I would say, not always overly sincere. And there's often a Mm. big paycheck that comes attached with it. And I'm not by any stretch, please don't think that I'm putting uh, what you're doing into this category. (laughs) But I've just, (laughs) but but I've I've seen examples and I'm interested on uh, on your take on it as someone who's written a book about it. Mm. Well, look, there is a whole... Well, certainly you don't make money writing a book in New Zealand, I can tell you. Yeah. But, but look, um, there is a whole industry that's sprung up around well-being, right? And it's a multi-billion dollar industry mm. that stretches the whole world. And particularly during COVID, I think when we realised, oh my goodness, everybody's going to clearly struggle over the next few years. Um, businesses, corporates, through a huge amount of money and resilience training, well-being coaching, 
bringing in speakers, running initiatives, doing mindfulness stuff, all the rest of it. So naturally, you do have, you know, the market presents a need. People are saying we need more of these services. There's a whole lot of people that step into that space. Here in New Zealand, you know, I am, am privileged to have met or interviewed a lot of the people, a lot of the high-profile people in our country from sport or politics or, um, you know, media who've, who've chosen to open up about their experiences. And I know that for most of them, and certainly for me, that's not a decision that you take lightly. And actually, mm. it costs you a lot. It costs you vulnerability, personal exposure. You know, I have people messaging me every week saying, look, I'm suicidal, I'm struggling, where do I go, what do I do? Um, so there's a whole lot, there's a whole sort of other side to that that I think, you know, if you're just doing it for social media fans or you're just doing it for money, um, certainly I would question someone's um, intentions or motivations behind that. But look, I, most of the people that I've met in New Zealand are, are doing it because they want to help and doing it because they want other people to be in, in a better space. But as I said earlier, I think we need to think really carefully about which stories we share and which stories are actually going to be useful for people. And the other thing is we've got to give them new stuff, right? Um, and I think part of that cynicism of that, oh, here we go again, or this is just another thing that's being rolled out or someone's making money off it, maybe comes from the fact that we've been sharing a lot of the same messages mm. over the last few years. And that's why I think we need to be giving people new stuff and giving them new ideas about how to look after their well-being rather than just saying, ask for help, ask for help. You know, and that message is really important, but it also frustrates me because you and I both know that depending on where someone is, their geography, where they live, what their family's like, what their income's like, what their local DHB is like, they may not be able to access that support even when they ask for it. Yeah. So I think it's about striking this balance of, encouraging people to go to go to professionals who can help them, but also giving them some tools that they can use to, to look after themselves as best they can and look after their friends and family as well. Because let's be honest, you know, we haven't talked about social media very much. We haven't talked about the online world. But a lot of the stuff we've talked about in this conversation can equally be applied to young people and the struggles that they're facing with their mental health as a result of all the negativity of the stuff that they're exposed to online as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. I mean, I, I'm of a generation that saw the transition from no internet, believe it or not, into, yeah. uh, you know, into where we are now with freaking AI. You know, like, yeah. it's the pace is just a, a extraordinary. Um, my cynicism probably, I think, as you answered that, uh, I think um, as I was sort of listening to it and processing it, I think it's the cynicism really comes down to the corporatization of it, you know. Absolutely. So you, you do have, uh, the, there's a need and there are genuine people and I totally agree and I think that the pretenders are pretty quickly found out and they don't get asked back to talk at things very often so I think there's that Uh, but when it becomes monetized, I think is when the cynicism really starts to kick in and uh, but you know at the same time you can't run something without uh, you know some funding behind it as well and people do want to be paid for their time so it's a you know it's a double edged sword and and look I think I'd compare it in some ways to the environmental movement climate change, sustainability, all of those conversations, you know, there was there was a point where a lot of that stuff started being corporatized because it became part of a brand and companies started using sustainability, we talk about greenwashing, yes. using those credentials or whatever to simply enhance their own PR rather than because they genuinely cared. And look, I have encountered organizations where they want me to come in and do some token talk you know, on mental health, and it's clear that they're just trying to tick the box or they need to be seen to be doing something in that space. They haven't really thought about how they can look after their employees better. So, um, look, I've seen, I've seen some of that. 
and I and I definitely think those organisations need to be called out for it. It's pretty clear to me when I when I'm talking to someone about whether they genuinely care about this topic and want to help their people, or whether they're just trying to do something um, that makes them look good. Yeah, and, and with the corporate model, I mean, it's so it's generally pretty... I'm sure there are some that are, you know, that, that are genuine about it. Yeah, and I think the main thing with any of these things, whether it's, you know, even things like neurodiversity, which we're now talking about in the workplace, is are we actually going to be consistent? Are these flash-in-the-pan, flavour-of-the-month type issues where we throw a lot of money and resource at it and try and upskill people and then they fade off the radar because they're not that popular anymore. Honestly, I think we've seen a bit of that with mental health, you know, like during COVID was well-being, 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 well-being. We have to look after people's well-being. We've got to give them flexibility. We've got to be interested in all these other aspects of their life. And mm. I think now things have moved on because, oh, yeah, the, the economy's not doing well and we're trying to deal with all these other things. Um, I do think that mental health has fallen down the priority list for a lot of organisations compared to where it was a couple of years ago. So, look, it's not easy being a leader these days. It's not easy running a business and trying to do BAU on top of all of these other things that you're trying to learn about and upskill. And when we talk about well-being, you know, there's a lot of people that I meet who haven't had well-being challenges. And that's, I guess, a really good thing for them, but it also means that this isn't the easiest concept to grasp. Mm. They're not always sure what to say or how to help. So I think we have to have grace for people and acknowledge that everyone's at a different point in their journey with a lot of these concepts. Um, and the main thing is, are they open-minded? You know, are they keen to learn? Are they keen to upskill? You don't need to have all the answers. You just need to be willing to to receive some new ideas and, and have your thinking challenged. You're a very common sense man, aren't you, Jahan? This is, uh, you know, uh, you, you see things from uh, multiple perspectives, which uh, I appreciate. I think it's great. Well, and I think the other thing is, you know, coming from a journalism background, I've also, I've seen all sides of this. I've seen um, the impact that negative media can cause, as I've explained, but also I passionately believe in journalism. And I know that most of the people that I've worked with in the media over the last 15 years want to tell good yarns and they want and they believe in the future of the country they're not trying to bring people down but they're working in a system where that can sometimes be a byproduct and it does frustrate me when i travel to um, rural communities where people just want to put the boot into the media and think you know it's it's all turned to custard and they're all out to have a go at us and have a go at farmers and i think the reality is far more complex than that and and the whole point of this webinar is to try and bridge that gap a little bit more and help people in rural communities understand how the media works and understand why it works in the way that it does. And also, in in my other spaces, I think it's really important for journalists to listen to some of these concerns as well and think about the impact that some of these stories have on people, especially those who might already be struggling or or not be in a good space. So I think we, we need to bridge that gap a little bit more rather than just um, making complaints. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's a, it's a very good point. I, I had a talk with um, some D- Dairy Women's Network uh, members last year along similar lines, actually, as to, um, you know, what it is or how... It was more from a public relations point of view. How can they get the attention of media? What sort of th- stories do you actually want to get out there and things like that? And I sort of made the analogy that it's like, a, you know, every sort of positive story that you might get out there is just another drop in the bucket for the overall perception that actually rural New Zealand and the farming community are vitally important to the nation and they do a yep. heck of a lot, you know, and it might be something what you that you might deem reasonably insignificant, but they all add up. Yes. Yeah, and also, look, there are great stories out there. I mean, I did a feature for the Sunday program a few years ago on wool, and I'm a layperson, I'm not in the, the farming sector, but I thought, why on earth are we not talking about this amazing product that used to be the backbone? 
of our economy. Mm. And they got to travel around the country and meet people who are incredibly passionate about wool, incredibly passionate about um, its natural properties, people who are using it to turn into fibres for nappies and making new plastics out of it. And I came away from that feeling really inspired. And it was awesome to flip the script on what had been such a negative story with the falling wool price and how you know the industry was just struggling and actually inject some hope into it. So I think journalists can play that role, but also... Look, people in the rural sector do need to get out there. They need to harass the media people in their community and say, hey, look, we're doing awesome stuff. You actually need to come and um, and, and get a part of it and share that story. So, yeah. again, everybody has a responsibility to change those perceptions. Um, and, and in order to do that, you've got to sometimes put yourself out there. You might have to go on camera or talk to a journalist. They're probably not going to bite your head off. <laughs> um, that's obviously a, a, a trust thing. But I do think it's really important that people don't just complain about the media, that they actually... Um, take that risk sometimes, put their money where their mouth is and, and be willing to tell their own story because no one can tell your story for you. You've got to do that yourself. You do indeed. Well, one of the things is the uh, preaching to the converted has always been yeah. a problem with the rural sector. I've said this for years and years and years. Very good at telling each other and the, the, the <laughs> other parts of the sector the good things that are going on, but it's about getting that message to the wider public and uh, I think that's, yeah. that's a point. Um, that I think they're starting to do that now. Um, but but that's taken a while to sort of get there. Um, Jahan, I've taken up a heck of a lot of your time. Um, tell us about your book, and I know it's been out for a couple of years, but uh, <laughs> yeah. um, and I know as well the other thing is there are 50 signed copies to give away to those yes. that attend uh, the uh, Tell Me the Good News webinar next Tuesday, 19th September, 12 p.m. So, Jahan, tell us just uh, to, to close this out, a little bit about uh, the book, why you decided uh, to do it, and, um, yeah, a little bit about it. Yeah, so um, a couple of years ago, I wrote a book called This Is Not How It Ends, How Rewriting Your Story Can Save Your Life. And I wrote that book at a time where I'd experienced four years of depression and and suicidality. um, And I decided to take some time out and try and um, rewrite my own story, basically. I realized that the story that I'd been carrying around in my head since I was a kid was actually the thing that was holding me back and was leading me to struggle. And what I did is I went back and I re-interviewed people that I'd spoken to as a journalist over the previous however many years, and I asked them to tell me how changing their story, changing their internal narrative, had got them through those difficult times. So it was a cathartic experience for me, but the reason that I put it out into the world is I wanted to share what I'd learned and share what I'd uh, all the stuff that I'd collected from these people that I'd interviewed. And so, yeah, it's been awesome to see that book go out in the world and, and help a few people. And yes, so we've got 50 copies to give away thanks to Balanced Agri-Nutrients. Very generous of them. The first 50 people to register for the webinar and also attend the webinar will get one of those books mailed to them. Wonderful stuff. And look at you getting the sponsor's name in there as well, Balanced <laughs> Agri-Nutrients. Good stuff, John. Uh, really nice to talk to you, man. That was a great chat. Yeah, Th- thoroughly enjoyed it. And, uh, uh, yeah, let's, um, let's get uh, as many people as we can tuning in next Tuesday. Thanks for that. Awesome. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Rex Technology and Innovation with NetSpeed, leaders in rural broadband. Rex Daily Podcast and NetSpeed. You can talk to them about fast, reliable, locally supported phone and broadband service available throughout New Zealand and rural and city areas, even if you move around, even if you're transient. Well, NetSpeed can help you. Give them a call and they will sort you out. Or go online. Get them online at netspeed.net.nz. Rural Exchange with NetSpeed. Broadband for the land. Without farming, you would be hungry, naked and sober. 
That's correct. All right, yes, yeah, so that means it is soapbox time here on Rex, and I've got uh, good old mate Ben Dooley from down south with us now. G'day, Ben. How you doing, buddy? Oh, not too bad. Dime yourself? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Bit of a rough night for you, was it? Yeah, a wee bit. It was forecast when we knew it was coming, but it was just a wee bit rougher than they said it was going to be. So uh, here we newborn lambs that have hit the ground have had a bit of a rough night, but yeah, they've, they've held up reasonably well, so... Yeah, can't, can't really complain too much. All right, well, uh, I appreciate the, the time that you're giving us on the programme today to go through a few of these comments. So we did ask, the PM recently announced plans and $100 million to turn New Zealand into a centre of excellence for sustainable ag and agri-tech. Is that where the focus of New Zealand ag should be? And I have to say, Ben, it sparked quite the discussion. What stood out for you? Yeah, um, there's there's a lot of them that are sort of a bit a bit far out there, and and to be fair, there's a little bit of truth in a lot of that. Uh, where was the one? One about let me see. Looks like an attempt to destroy farms in in the Netherlands is about to be followed in NZ. I don't buy into that, but there is a degree of truth there because it's the whole emissions thing, and they, I think they just view farming as an easy target, and uh, they can force us to reduce emissions without losing votes. So, like I say, there's a degree, there's a degree of truth there, but it's I don't I don't buy into the whole big agenda they're trying to shut us down. But yeah, interesting people are, are uh, looking at that. And then there's another one down the bottom. Yeah, leave the farmers to farm freely. And in our current financial climate, that's sort of what we need. Like farming is ultimately what pays the bills in New Zealand. Uh, there, there's no big rush to tourism coming back, so it's not going to be. It, it'll get better, but it's not going to be paying its way for a fair while. I don't think. If we want to get our books looking reasonable, we need farmers to be able to farm freely. It's not even about farmers making money, it's about farmers being able to spend the money that they need to spend, put money, like they say, a dollar earned in dairy is like seven or eight times recirculated, and sheep and beef I think is ten times. So we rely on that big time, and the government rely on that for their money flowing through their system too. A couple of people, including uh, Dennis Sharp, who talked about the Netherlands, says, uh, be wary farmers, the WEF has its sights on you. He's not the only one to mention the WEF, the World Economic Forum, which uh, has, <laughs> I tell you what, I don't know how much you know about it, Ben Dooley, but it's got a lot of people a bit scared, uh, this World Economic Forum. I think that's uh, Klaus Schwab and uh, that mob who uh, basically said recently, or along the lines of, uh, you know, in the future you will own nothing and you will be happy. I think that's that mob. Yeah, that's the one. And hey, they definitely do want that. They uh, they want a lot of things. They want basically international communism. But uh, <laughs> the, one good thing, the one good thing about it, though, is that it's the World Economic Forum. And if governments so choose to make it nothing, it is nothing. They don't have to follow what Klaus, Klaus Schwab's doing. And in my own mind, really, like there's a lot of stuff going on at the moment with trade deals and that, and they seem to have their nose in there. And we used to have this amazing, powerful thing called the World Trade Organization, which governed a lot of that stuff. And I don't know what's happened to that in recent times, but it seems as though that WEF has sort of taken over its place a wee bit. But like I say, it does not have to stay that way. I liked your comment, Ben. Uh, shit no, you say. We're in recession, right? If you want to be doing that sort of stuff, do it in prosperous times, as in six years into a centre-right government. Right now, uh, it should be lowering taxes, especially at the bottom end, cutting things like that, focus on health, education, roading maintenance, that's crucial. Uh, emergency services, let people live their lives. I feel like that kind of sums things up, Ben, which is half the reason uh, I'm, I always enjoy talking to you, but I thought that was a good summary of where we're kind of at at the moment. 
Oh, well, thanks for that, Dom. Hey, look, uh, when you ask people if they're happy to pay taxes, if, if things are delivered, the things that they talk about are education, healthcare, roading, because we all use roads, and then obviously you've got the emergency services. If those things are not funded, nothing else should be funded. And those are the four reasons that people don't want to pay no tax. You know, we all want those things. We all want those things looked after. But all this other stuff they go on about, it's not the time to be doing that. We need people to be making money. Farming does make money for the country at the moment. Just leave it at that. And uh, once there's a bit of money behind us, because the Labor government have blown far too much of it, then you can look at doing stuff like that. When you've got the opportunity, when the cash is available, not when you're borrowing however many billion it is a month they're borrowing at the moment to keep the place going, we need to be looking at almost austerity measures to pay that back. The other interesting one that I found in there, I'm just sort of searching through them now. There's so many comments, it's hard to sort of uh, keep a handle on all of them, Ben. But there was an interesting one about India. And uh, we should be looking to uh, tap into the Indian market. Well, they've just had that trade delegation over there. The problem with India, they are actually uh, the world's largest dairy producer. They're pretty much a quarter of the milk produced globally comes out of India. And we're about, what, 2 to 3%? pretty much. Uh, we put a little bit into there, but the problem is is the tariffs, uh, somewhere between 30 and 60%. That solution is just not on the table at the moment. No, it's not. And and you've got to be mindful. Like, you know, India is home to the sacred cow, isn't it? And they're going to have their own views on, on, on what they want to do when it comes to dairy. I, I think there's opportunities there for other products like red meat, definitely. Um, and hey, in time, like uh, India are, are a developing nation. They, they have plenty of people coming out into the middle class lots and lots of people every day um, who are going to sort of be prepared to put those things to the side a wee bit and they might just say well we want a cheaper better product and then the pressure goes on government to let that stuff happen but as it is right now I think putting too much energy to try and get a whole lot of dairy into India is probably a bit futile because they are protectionist and they have they're allowed to be protectionists if they so choose. And just to finish up, up on here, uh, Graham Abbott, uh, what a crock of shit, he says. Them and the Greens, meaning Labor and the Greens, are doing all they can to put farmers out of business via still letting uh, good land be used for pines, uh, making up BS regulations and taxes, everything from fertiliser, water use emissions, SNAs, fuel taxes, etc., all this to make them look good for the UN. And there we have it again, the WEF, that, that makes an appearance once again Ben so uh, yeah look it was an interesting question should uh, the promises uh, that Labour and Chris Hipkins have made in relation to where the future of ag should be in terms of where we put the money should it be in agri-tech etc it seems like people are saying by and large and you probably agree with this Ben we're having had a look at uh, those all those comments that um, basically people are saying no not yet yeah absolutely thank you so much for joining us much appreciated No, good on you, Dom. Thank you. And with that, we conclude the soapbox for this week. And as always, let's hear some wisdom to round things off from Ron Swanson. What are you eating? I call this Turf and Turf. It's a 16-ounce T-bone and a 24-ounce porterhouse. Also, whiskey and a cigar. I'm going to consume all of this at the same time because I am a free American. Rural Focus, brought to you by Carter's Tyres. Specialists in ag tyres, supporting NZ farmers for 35 years. All right, a couple of bits and pieces have come through the old email box today and uh, I can tell you firstly that uh, earlier today Indivan Group, which is New Zealand's largest wine company and the owner of the iconic Villa Maria brand, 
Well, they've announced that Silver Fern Farms Chief Executive Simon Limmer will replace Indivin founder and CEO Duncan McFarlane, marking the next chapter and further cementing Indivin's leadership and commitment to the thriving New Zealand wine industry. That's a media release, clearly, but uh, the news there is Simon Limmer, Chief Executive of Silver Fern Farms, will be the next uh, Indivin Group Chief Executive. So there's that, and then I also see that uh, Rabobank has put something out today. When I find it, I'll tell you about it. They have their latest global dairy quarterly report out. And uh, the top line there is with a full rebalance of the Chinese dairy market not expected in the near term. Rabobank is saying that dairy farmers in New Zealand and around the globe will need to manage through more financial pain in the months ahead. Don't want to end on that note, but hey, what can you do? Uh, just reporting uh, what's been going on out there. That is all. Uh, that is our show for today. Thanks to the contributors. Thanks to NetSpeed, as always. Have a great day. We'll catch you all back tomorrow. Rural Exchange with NetSpeed. Broadband for the land.